Would you join in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 18, excuse me, Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, and we want to uh, just focus in on verse 18 first, and then I want to give you a little bit about the location and the context. But verse 18, and Jesus is speaking, we know that because it's red letters, and he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christ had a plan for the church. And we read about it here. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's in the, in the area of Capernaum. And we have a map here. You can see this. The Sea of Galilee, you'll see uh, uh, right here. And there were cities on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee where the fishermen had come from. Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida. Um, Peter, James, John, Andrew were all from these cities. Jesus was born, as you know, in Bethlehem. But his family, his parents had come from uh, his mother, and uh, Joseph, a spouse to be married to her, came from uh, the area of Nazareth. Up, up here you can see it in Galilee. Uh, right there's Nazareth. But Jesus in his ministry made Capernaum kind of the, his new hometown. This was the, the central place of his ministry, the launch pad. He would always come home to this. And if you, if you visit the city today, you can see uh, where Peter's house was, and you can see where the synagogue was. But you can imagine, with Jesus' hometown, walking up and down the streets, recognizing people, and some of those people that he'd recognized, he ended up healing. So they knew him, and he knew them. Um, and it was just a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. But he's on his way to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, you can't see it on the map, but it'd be way down here, uh, come down from the Sea of Galilee. Okay, I've lost it. Um, right down here, all the way down here. And Jerusalem is way down here. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. So he is on mission. He is set towards Jerusalem. And yet the story that we're going to read today takes him all the way up to this little town of Caesarea Philippi up here, which is 35 miles from Capernaum, to Caesarea Philippi, out of the way. And so it causes us as Bible students to ask the question, why would Jesus take the disciples 35 miles out of the way, one way, when they didn't have bicycles, they didn't have cars, they didn't have mass transit, they walked. Why did he take them 35 miles out of the way when he was supposed to be going to Jerusalem? I think you'll see here as we look at some pictures of Caesarea Philippi. It's on the, it's, it's really on the base of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is the, by far the tallest mountain in all of Israel. It's up in the north and in the east. The snow melts from the top of Mount Hermon and comes down and forms these little rivers and tributaries. And in the spring, they become like torrents. And they, they, they feed into the Sea of Galilee but, there, but it also created this spot uh, called Caesarea Philippi that's like a garden. It's absolutely beautiful. You see pictures of the spring here, but you also see a picture of the cliffs. The cliffs behind it, you can notice these, these little niches carved out out of this limestone wall, uh, this cliff. And this is where they would place their idols or their gods. And the, the god that was known for, in this area was Pan. 
But they worshipped other gods, and also there was a, a temple built there for the worship of Caesar. And so this was a place that was known in Old Testament times as a place for demonic activity, and it's a place in New Testament times, it was an eclectic place for worship of other gods. But it was also, so it was a center for pagan worship, but it was also the center for sinful activity. This was the sin city of the day. And I won't go into details, but all kinds of junk happened there. And and so it, it again begs the question, why would Jesus go 35 miles out of the way to this place, a center for pagan worship and a center for sinful activity? Because what he was teaching was so important and he wanted to do it in that context so that the, the, the disciples would never, ever forget. So let's look at the context, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Great question. John asked this earlier. And the, the word there for people is common people. Who do the common people, who do the people on the street say that I am? And they, the disciples gave the answer. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And then he zeroes in on him. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Every person born into this world has to answer that question. And there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. And the answer hinges, eternity hinges on that answer. Who do you say that I am? I remember, um, it's been a, at least a couple of years ago now, I got a call from a friend of mine who was kind of well-connected to people in the metro area. He, I was out of state, and he called me, and he said, I just had lunch with the county executive from our county, and uh, he told me that no one knows it yet, but he's got stage four cancer. And he said, so I asked him, Do you, are you ready to meet your maker? He said, he, did, he didn't give me a good answer. So I said, well, you've got to come to church with me this Sunday, and you need to meet the Reverend, Reverend Doug, Reverend Schmidt. I've never been called that before. And so he, he called me, and I was in Wyoming. He said, are you going to be there Sunday? I said, I will. He said, I want, to, I want to introduce you to this man, and he may want to ask you some questions. I didn't think much of it. wasn't sure he would even come. But he came, and after the last service, we were in the foyer. He's in a wheelchair because of an auto accident a few years ago. But he asked me a question. We went, we, he wheeled over by the glass wall in our foyer, and he said, to, he said, Reverend, can you tell me, is it possible for a person to know for sure that they're going to go to heaven? I couldn't have written the question any better for him, John. And I shared with him the gospel in a couple of different ways. And he reminded me, he says, you know, that through my foundations, we've been able to make the wishes come true for 3,500 children. I said, I know of your work. It's fantastic. People have been blessed by it. But you know, when it comes to heaven, none of that counts. And he looked at me and said, what do you mean? I said, we never know if you've done enough. Because it's not our works, it's the work of Jesus on the cross. And you can know for sure. And I'm delighted to tell you over the next few months as we spent time together, and other people spent time with him as well, 
he came to know Jesus. I was with him uh, a couple of days before he died, the last day he was lucid. And I was in his home, and we were, I was holding his hand, and he was in bed. And I called him my name, and I said, do you know for sure? Are you trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation? And he squeezed my hand and smiled and said, yes. Everybody has to answer that question. And you want to get this one right. Jesus is the only way. The same friend called me uh, sometime later. It was actually uh, about a year and four months ago, five months ago. And he, he said, I just had lunch with the guy who mentioned his name. He said, do you know him? I said, I don't. And he told me the story of this man starting this huge law firm in the, the Detroit metro area. And he's 80 years old now. And he's, he's very wealthy, super intelligent. He said, we had lunch together. And he said, this man said to me, the lawyer, he said, Don, I heard a story where you introduced this county executive to somebody who shared something with him, and he made some kind of decision before he died. <clears throat> Can you tell me that story? So my friend Don told him the story, and then this, this man, his name is Gil. Gil said, uh, I've got stage four cancer. Would you do that for me? So he introduced us. And we spent about three hours together that led to lots of questions. And then he was going to do all of his uh, uh, therapy in his, his home in Naples. And so we've texted and talked in every conversation. If, we, if I mention a book, he'll order it before the conversation's over. And I'll always close by saying, Gil, you know, I love you. And I'm praying for you. And I want to see you in heaven. And he'll, he'll, he'll say, Doug, I love you too. And then it was... Uh, some, a few months ago, I said, what, are, what obstacles are left to your faith? And he shared about the resurrection. And I said, well, let's do some reading on it. So we read. And then he called me just not that long, not, not long ago. And he told me that he's got some experimental relief from the drugs and it's going to extend his life. And he was very happy. And uh, I said, great. Now that your earthly life is extended, let's talk about extending it through eternity with Jesus. And he says, I'm there. I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. And I asked him the questions, and he confirmed it and all the rest of it. And I'm going to see him in a couple of weeks, and I can't wait. But folks, all of us have to answer that question. And we can be wrong on a lot of things, but we can't be wrong on this. Are you with me? We can't be wrong on this. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, you came, you are God, you came from heaven itself as the Son of God to die on the cross for our sins. You took my penalty because I was estranged from God, broken, um, an object of his wrath, but reconciled when I couldn't do anything about it. Jesus, you died for me, and I acknowledge that. And I accept your work for me in, on the cross as my salvation. You are the Son of the living God. If you haven't answered that question like that, you need to. And I want to speak very kindly to you. I don't know you folks well, but I love you. And if you haven't answered that question well, you have, a, you have an appointment with God for which you're not ready. You want to be ready. And there'll be people here at the church that can help you, friends that would love to share with you how you can know Jesus. And so Peter answered that question. And Jesus says, you got it. 
He goes on to say in verse 17, Peter, flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you. You didn't get this from your dad, the son of Jonah. You didn't get it from him. But your father in heaven. And that's what salvation is. Salvation is not all of a sudden coming to a right conclusion and putting the pieces together. It's God doing a work in our heart and life, bringing us to the point of conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and the Holy Spirit breathing into us that spiritual life, that regeneration that's talked about. It's the work of God. And so he builds on that. And notice, we'll get back into verse 18 now, where he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against. The first part of the book, books have been written about what that means. There are a number of different views. Uh, Obviously, some say that that Peter is the rock, and therefore he's the, the founder of the church. And I don't believe that. I think... What Peter was doing was as the spokesman for all of the disciples, and he's making this declaration at this point and in this time in Caesarea Philippi, where, where Jesus is asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? Take your pick. Am I one of those up on the, on the wall, the limestone wall? Or are you worshiping yourself through your horrible life choices? He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the key. Jesus Christ is the builder of his church. Let me share some scripture, and I'll be sharing a lot of scripture in the moments we have today. Uh, some of it, much of it will be on the, on the screen, but not all of it. First um, Corinthians 3.11, no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then Ephesians 2, uh, 19 through 22, where it says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he builds this wonderful picture. It's Jesus' church, and he's building it. He's the foundation Uh, He's the cornerstone. The foundation is laid by the apostles and prophets. It includes, in in large parts, the declaration of the identity of Jesus and the work of Jesus. But then he says, and all of you are living stones in this body that's beautifully put together. Who built the church? Jesus built it. Jesus built it. Ephesians chapter 4. Jesus is building his church, but he chooses to use us in the building process. I like this. This is really important, folks, that we get this. Uh, let me just share verses uh, 11 and 12. Ephesians chapter 4. The context here is Jesus uh, descended into the lower part and also us- ascended, but when he ascended, he gave gifts. And those gifts are, are delineated in verse 11. And he gave these gifts to the church. And he gave apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. The word shepherd there is the word... Uh, um, pastor. He gave pastors. Um, these are gifted people that God gave to the church. Some, I believe, the pro- prophets and apostles were for a time period of the first, uh, the apostolic age. Uh, evangelists are more itinerant, and they seem to have a special gift of communicating the gospel in a way that uh, they had the blessing of the anointing of God of seeing many people come to know Jesus. And then you have uh, pastors and teachers um, some would argue those are one position, pastor slash teacher. 
and, and others will say, no, based on this uh, uh, grammar argument, that there are two different positions. But these were gifted people that God put in a package and he gave to the church. We as churches have to recognize that the pastor God gave us, while not being perfect, is a gift from God. And therefore, we need to treat that gift as one in a way that we honor the gift giver. So my encouragement is to, for, for you as you look for a new pastor, you're asking God, God, what is that gift that you have for Calvary Baptist Church, for our next pastor? And Lord, help us to treat that gift as the gracious gift from the gift giver. But then notice verse number 12. It says, to equip the saints, he gave the gift to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Those three expressions are not parallel, but rather building. So the pastor's job is not to do the work of the ministry. Some churches think that, you know. They think, oh, we just hire a pastor, and the pastor will do the work of the ministry. It's his job. According to this verse, his job is one word, to equip. Equip. Equip the saints so the saints do the work of the ministry. So it moves us from positions where we're maybe just sit and listen to positions where we're using our gifts. The word equip, though, is a really important word. It's used, the Greek word for equip is used to refer to, in the New Testament at one point, to fishermen mending their nets. If they threw their nets out and brought them back in, but perhaps a net was ripped by the rocks, that net is useless to catch fish unless the, the fisherman mends the net. That's the word equip. Pastors are called to equip or mend believers, to bring believers to the place where they can be effective in doing the work of the ministry. The word is also used for setting a broken bone. So a person breaks a bone, and there's a lot of pain. The thing needs to be fixed and set, or we'll never heal correctly. The pastor is to equip, and sometimes that involves resetting the bones. That process can be painful at times. But that's what pastors are supposed to do. They're to do everything necessary through their preaching and teaching and counseling and shepherding, confronting, rebuking the body, so the body is equipped to do the work of the ministry. Um, we talked yesterday about the church being simple, and we want to keep it simple. Uh, and so it's, we don't want to add complexities that don't need to be there. At the same time, the church is the most complex organization ever. Not because of its size, but because it has two goals that are irreconcilable, that need to be accomplished at the same time. One of them is the building up of the body, discipleship, and the other is evangelism. And so the pastor's job is to equip the saints to build them up so that they can do the work of evangelism and going out into the community. And so it's very, very difficult. When you're running a business and you need, to, you need help, you run an ad, uh, you get some resumes, you have people come in for interviews, you can choose the, the very best. For the church, we've got the most important task in all the world, and yet, we're doing it as walking wounded. 
I speak for myself. We're walking wounded, and Jesus says, whosoever will may come, and we all come. We all came, didn't we? And now he's saying to us, okay, grow. Get the bones fixed, mend the necks, get strong while you're reaching the world. Okay? Jesus is building his church. Let's work with him. Secondly, I want you to notice Jesus Christ is the owner of his church. I love the word here. He says, I will build, what is it? My church, my church, I'll build my church. Sometimes we use that. People say, well, where do you go to church? You say, well, my church is, is at Calvary Baptist Church. And you're not saying it in terms of ownership. You're saying in terms of identity. I identify with that church. Pastors will do the same. Well, they'll say, uh, this is my church. They don't mean it in a sense of ownership. Most of them don't. But they mean it in a sense of identity. This is where God's called me. This is where I am to serve. Every church, every Bible-believing church that I know of would agree to this truth, that the church belongs to Jesus. I will build my church. Every church I know will say that. Not every church will behave like it. You know what I'm talking about? They... Um, when God was beginning to do the work at Woodside and we began to see phenomenal uh, growth and people coming to know Jesus, I would often get questions from people outside. Sometimes other pastors, they said, well, who runs Woodside? I said, well, that'd be Jesus. No, 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 no. Like, who, who runs it? Is it the pastors? Is it the deacons? Is it the elders? Is it the oldest members? Is it the majority? Who runs Woodside? So the answer is the same. It's Jesus. That means it doesn't belong to the oldest members. It doesn't belong to the, you know, the biggest family. It doesn't belong to the, the elders or the deacons or the pastor. This belongs to Jesus. So it means that all of our agendas have to come under the authority of his agenda. This is his idea. This is his church. He loved it more than any pastor could love their church. He died for it. The Bible says he gave his blood for his church. This is Jesus' church. Calvary Baptist Church has a great history. It's got a great story. God's not done writing it yet because it's his. It's his story. It's his church. Number three. I'm going to have to speak faster if you're okay with listening faster, are you? Okay, are you with me yet? You promised you'd help me, you know. Number three. The church is made up of people committed to Christ. He says, I will build my church. The word is ecclesia, it just means called out ones. We're called out of the world. We're his church. Not perfect people. We're not better, we're just different. And what makes us different is not our effort, it's his grace that we experience through the cross. So, he, so we're gathered together for worship, for fellowship, I mentioned the earlier service. I was so impressed uh, when I was watching people come in today because I saw so many smiles that you enjoy each other, don't you? That's the way it should be. We're gathered together. And I know this is during a time and some of you are watching from home or, or perhaps from another place, and I understand that for, for this season. But I can't wait until we're all together as one family. And we're worshiping together we're able to um, 
or maybe even give hugs again someday. I don't know. But we're gathered together for this. Worship, fellowship, discipleship, growing, and then we're scattered for evangelism. So when we talk about what God's doing in the life of the church, we're not talking about a building. We're talking about us. We're talking about evangelism. We need to see more people come to know Jesus. Every church does. But it's not the building and it's not the body. It's all of us going out into our world scattered to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, he owns it. It's his. It's made up of people. Therefore, let's work with him. Let's work with him. And number four, the church must be on the offensive. He says here, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Every, um, everyone who writes about this will remind us that gates are not offensive weapons. They're a defensive mechanism. To protect the city, to protect the house, you have gates and you lock those gates to keep the wrong people from coming in. And so the church must be on the offensive in the gates of hell. And that area that I showed you was at that time uh, considered the gates of hell was kind of a collective term to refer to the forces of the wicked one, the gates of hell. The gates of hell will not prevail, and so therefore the church must be bold and aggressive in five areas, five areas that I've given you. Let me give them to you quickly here. First of all, with holy living. Philippians, Paul writes to the Philippian church in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He says, do everything without complaining or arguing. If I were going to list some sins, I wouldn't include, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say those, would you? Don't we all in our minds have a list of like the top ten sins and coincidentally ours are never make the list. But he says, don't argue or complain. Why? Because all of that energy takes us away from doing what we're supposed to be doing and being holy representatives of a holy God in a broken world. He goes on to say, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a wicked and depraved generation in which you shine like the stars in the universe. And unfortunately, I'm not going to get into, fortunately, I'm not going to get into politics or anything like that, but I think I can go out on the limb and say that maybe in the last few years we've had lots of illustrations of Christians behaving badly. Are you okay with me on that? I'm not talking about any political party. I'm just talking about Christians behaving badly. So much so that the unbelieving world doesn't really care what we think. They don't want to know what we believe. Many of them don't want anything to do with us. In a large part, it's been because of our behavior as a group. Secondly, we're to be salt and light, therefore. Secondly, with intentional gospel presentation, communication. He says just before he ascended into heaven, Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Those are our marching orders as a church to share to be bold in gospel communication. I remember the, in the early days of pastoring um, in Troy, there was a, a, a unity breakfast. It was the Thursday, first Thursday of, of May, and it was the same day as the National Day of Prayer, and I would be asked to come to that. I would be asked to, to participate and asked to pray. But I was told <clears throat> very kindly 
you know, we don't want to offend anybody. So when we pray, we don't want to pray in his name, Jesus' name. And I knew then that I would, I would not be welcome there. If Jesus was not welcome, I'm not welcome. And our message today is the words of Jesus in the night before he was crucified. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. We need to be bold in that proclamation. And then second, or, or, for, or thirdly, with good deeds. Jesus, again, in Matthew chapter 5 says, In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify or praise your Father in heaven. Um, we mentioned yesterday, and I illustrated with the story or the, 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 the words of Peter as he's writing to believing wives with unbelieving husbands. And he said to them, and if I can reword it, um, live out your life in front of them. In other words, maybe stop preaching with your words, turn down the words, but turn up the music. And let them see the music, the life that God has created and is writing in your life. Perhaps we're at a time in our country where we need to do good deeds, to create goodwill, to share the good news. We almost always share the good news. But perhaps at this point, we need to win over our audience to the extent where let them, let them see what Christ has done in our lives. Um, a couple of quick stories where I've seen this happen so many times. Um, there was a little girl on the streets of Detroit and she'd been there for 17 years working the streets. Um, and one night, a van went by, a white van, people were hanging out the windows yelling, and hey, but it turned around. And it came to where she was, she told me the story. And she said, they, they talked with me, they gave me hygiene kits, and they prayed for me. And she didn't accept Jesus that night, but it wasn't long after that she did. She came to know Jesus as her savior. And from that good deed, they're just handing out hijack kits and tell, tell the story of Jesus and praying for her. Um, at our church, she would sit in the front row at 11.30 service. Next to her would be another gal who's been rescued from the streets for the gospel. And right down the row, and, and one of the, another gal. And, her, her. and when, when the worship started, John, the band would play these gals would get on their faces before the Lord. And I would, I always sit right, I did this morning in, in our church, and I'd look over, and I'd see them. And I thought, I need to be on my face before God. It reminded me of the story that told in the life of Jesus. Remember the, when the woman crashed the, the dinner party and she washed his feet and the disciples get her away. Jesus said no. He who has been forgiven much loves much. I told that story one day in our church of this first young lady. An FBI agent was there from our church 
God was working in his heart. And he went on to create. He just saw the needs of these ladies who had been rescued, but they have legal issues that are insurmountable, and they don't have the resources. And God led him to begin an organization called the Joseph Project, where he leverages the, the, um, the law and lawyers who donate their time to rescue these gals from their legal and financial issues. It's been amazing. It's happening across the state of Michigan. Good deeds. We say to our church, find a need and fill it. Find a hurt and heal it. And I don't need to remind you that everywhere we look today, there are needs that need to be filled and hurts that need to be healed. And we can do that. I remember it was probably four or five years ago now, it was probably near the end of the year, maybe December, and I was walking from my office to the, the other end of the building, and I saw a room with lights on, and I went in. And there were, uh, it seemed like maybe eight or ten women there. And I, I said, what are you doing? We're just making Christmas gifts, baskets. Well, how, I, who are you going to give them to? And they told me the story. They said, uh, we were concerned that there were um, the women entertainers in our city. I don't know how to describe it other than that on a Sunday morning. But that we wanted to let them know that people loved them more than just for their bodies. So they talked about going into these clubs and just talking to the manager and said, would you mind if we came in like... Uh, once a week and brought a meal for the women. He said, would you do it for me too? So they did. And they began to show the love of Jesus um, to people who were marginalized, people who were used, all around us. Find hurt and heal it. Find a need and fill it. And where are we at? Number five? Help me, folks. Where we're at is out of time. With genuine love. Now, let me just make this comment here. We need to be bold in expressing our love towards one another. Jesus said this in, in John chapter 13. I give, you a, I, give you, I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That's powerful, isn't it? Jesus said, love each other. And when we love each other as a church at Calvary Baptist Church, the world is going to see it and want an explanation for it. It doesn't mean we all agree on everything. It doesn't mean we vote the same party. It doesn't mean we, we, we agree on style of music. But we love each other. And nothing can separate us from that love that we have for each other. And when we have that, then we've got a message. And we're communicating that message that we are a church that's been impacted by Jesus. We love him. He's our message. He's our motivation. And he's given us this love and unity for each other. I was with a group of pastors I'm leading a mentor group on Wednesday morning. And there were four pastors there. And they, we start off the meeting with just updates for 15 minutes or so updates. And one man shared, but they all... They all resonated with his, his pain 
He said, I'm, I'm hurting today. I said, what's going on? He said, I have people in my church that I've baptized, I've seen them come to Christ, maybe I married them, dedicated their children, we've served together for 10, 12 years, and then they leave. Because of the mask. Either the church was too strict or not strict enough. And I'm thinking, I, I thought of that song. Remember the, the uh, old song, if you grew up in church world, you remember Onward Christian Soldiers. Anybody remember that? Okay, Onward Christian Soldiers marching us to war. We, in, in hymnology, we've kind of eliminated those terms now because we don't like war and, and particularly any reference to the Crusades and the negative part of the Crusades that perhaps will hinder us in reaching uh, Muslims who don't know Jesus yet. So I get all that. But folks, let's not forget we are at war, right? But our war isn't against people. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. So nothing should be able to separate us from each other. Let's love each other. Certainly not a piece of cloth. Let's let nothing like that come between us. And, uh, and in my mind, I can't believe that anybody would leave a church and leave that body of love that they have over something so uh, non-theological and a piece of paper. One more thing. Are you with me yet? Let's, we'll make this quick, but you've got you to leave on this note. And that is, he said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do you know that you're victorious? Not only does it give you boldness to be on the offensive, you also have the recognition that we win. We win. The gates of hell will never overcome it. And I've heard lots of people in the last few months who've said, wow, the church is in trouble today, depending on what's going to happen in the Supreme Court, depending on what's going to happen with elections, and depending on what's going to happen. It doesn't depend on any of that. The fact of the matter is, Jesus said, you have my presence, and you have my power, and you have my authority, and you have my Holy Spirit. And you have the declaration that on a cross, 2,000 years ago, the victory was determined. And we are victorious. So let's live with that, folks. Let's, let's not be discouraged. Let's not be blind. Let's not be discouraged. Let's live in the hope and the recognition that this thing's already won. And God has brought the victory. We have his power. We have his presence. We, we will have his suffering. But we have his victory and we're victorious.